As Iyanla Van Zant once said, it's important that we share our experiences with other people. Your story will heal you and your story will heal somebody else. At Project Sleep, we believe that your stories matter, which is why we train people with sleep disorders on how to share their stories through our Rising Voices program. This Rising Voices podcast series features a variety of firsthand stories from people living with sleep disorders around the world. Each person's story offers unique and important insights. Welcome to Project Sleep's podcast. Project Sleep is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to raising awareness and advocating for sleep health, sleep equity, and sleep disorders. I'm your host, Julie Flygar. We're so glad you're here as we work together towards making sleep cool. On this podcast, all guests express their own opinions. While medical diagnoses and treatment options are discussed for educational purposes, this information should not be taken as medical advice. Each person's experience is so unique, which is why it's so important to always consult your own medical team when making decisions about your own health. If you haven't done so yet, please hit the subscribe button so you never miss a Project Sleep podcast episode. And if you enjoy this podcast, please leave us a rating or review wherever you listen so that we can reach more listeners and raise more awareness. Hello, everyone. We are really excited tonight because we have a very special guest with us, Katie Meehan, and she'll be sharing her story tonight. Katie Meehan is the Director of Career Services for a public school district in the Phoenix, Arizona area, specializing in career and technical education. Outside of work, she enjoys spending time with her husband and two boys, ages six and two. Entering her sophomore year of college, she was diagnosed with narcolepsy and cataplexy almost five years after the initial onset of her symptoms. Katie hopes to spread awareness of this neurological sleep disorder in an effort to help others in obtaining more timely diagnosis. Take it away, Katie. Thank you, Julie. Well, I am excited to share my story with you all tonight. As Julie said, my name is Katie. And um, I'll kind of just start about life before narcolepsy. So I grew up about 30 minutes north of Seattle, Washington. I've always really loved school and technology. As a high school freshman, I joined the Future Business Leaders of America and I spent all four of my years in high school actively involved in that. I was a part of student government, and I even worked part-time for my local school districts in the accounts payable office back in high school when I was working at my school district. I really wasn't someone that allowed things to hold me back. No one could tell me that I wasn't able to accomplish things, but there were certainly times that I found myself feeling like my body was trying to hold me back. As a freshman in high school, I began to notice that I would fall unexpectedly and really quite often. I was always tired. It didn't matter how long I had slept for. And I had enough energy to make it through school and my club activities. But as soon as I came home, I just crashed. My symptoms really began my freshman year of high school, but I can think back to my senior year when I was in student government um, and we had a leadership class. And in that class, we would do different projects on campus, and we'd often be running around our student um, council offices. Lots of times acting silly, just getting things done. And many times while I was running around in um, this class, I would find myself tripping and falling. Out of nowhere, though, nothing was on the ground to trip me. 
and I really had no clue why this was happening. I often thought I was clumsy, and to be honest, that's what my doctor had said. When I went to the pediatrician with my mom for a checkup in high school, my mom had noted that I was lethargic, that I fell randomly, and the doctor simply stated, she's just a teenager, they're all tired and clumsy. For me, those words really struck a chord. I knew that I wasn't just someone who was tired and clumsy, but I didn't know that I should be trying to push this person to help me find more answers. It really became the normal for me to fall multiple times a day. My friends were used to it at this point. People often watched out for me. My FBLA advisor would walk alongside me at conferences and help lift me back up when I dropped to the ground. But my extreme sleepiness really did start creeping in on my social, academic, and work life. It was really hard to stay awake after school, even if I was only working two and a half hours a day. I sometimes get to work, get done quickly, and ask to go home early because I knew I'd have trouble driving on the way home. And while I didn't date much in high school, I certainly canceled more dates than I went on due to my overwhelming need to get rest. When I moved away from home to attend undergrad, again, I wasn't seeking a diagnosis. It didn't occur to me that something was really wrong. My doctor had said what I was feeling was just normal teenage tired and clumsiness. I lived on campus my freshman year of undergrad, and a few weeks into school, my residence hall manager, Jen, stopped me in the hall. She and a few of the RAs had noticed that my random falls in the hallway were happening a lot, and they were all concerned that I'd been drinking, and they wanted to make sure to address that behavior. I assured Jen that I had not tried any alcohol and that this was just something that happens to me. And she assured me that while it might be my normal, it's certainly not normal, and that I should be making an appointment with Campus Health. I appreciated her concerns, but just let it go. It was something that I'd already been dealing with for four years. A few weeks later, I was at a hall meeting and Jen politely asked me if I had followed up with Campus Health. I let her know that I hadn't and just went on with the conversation I was having with my new friend, Jesse. Jesse had lived in the hall with me and had heard that conversation with Jen and asked what she was inquiring about. I let Jesse know about my symptoms. I told her about the falling, the sleepiness, and I even noted that sometimes I felt shaky for no reason. I wasn't ashamed to tell her because I never tried to hide my symptoms. If, if people want to be around me, they were definitely going to notice these eventually. As I described my symptoms, Jesse really listened intently to me. And when I was done talking, even though I'd only known her a few weeks, she then shared that she too struggled with many of these types of symptoms. She had had extreme tiredness, unexplained falls, and uncontrollable shakiness at times. The difference with Jesse, though, she shared, was at the age of 13, she had been diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. I remember being very concerned when I heard this. Also kind of relieved to know that someone else had been given a diagnosis for what they were experiencing, and it wasn't just life. Jesse mentioned to me that she did have a great neurologist and that she would give me his name so that I could follow up with Campus Health and ask for that referral. My conversation with Jesse happened in the 
beginning of the fall semester of 2004. Due to a load of full classes and having to now learn how to navigate the world of asking for a referral, it wasn't until late spring semester 2005 that I actually sat in the office of her neurologist to have my initial appointment. My mom attended the appointment with me when we and when we arrived at the doctor to review my symptoms, he kind of just asked for a timeline and what I'd been experiencing. After describing what I'd been experiencing for the past almost five years, he asked me one simple question. Do you ever fall when you're talking on the phone or by yourself? And I thought about it. I couldn't really think of a time that I'd fallen while talking on the phone or by myself. So I looked to my mom to see if she could think of it. And neither of us really could. So after I said that, the doctor's reply was really nothing that I could have ever anticipated. He said, the good news is, if the falls are only happening when you're with people, then it is possible that it's behavioral problem that you've developed to gain attention. I was just shocked. I was also outraged. How could someone, especially a doctor, think that I was falling multiple times a day in order to gain attention? When we moved on for the conversation, um, we talked about other possibilities. Could it be epilepsy? Could it be heart conditions? These were important things that he wanted to rule out before we move forward. Once those tests were complete, he'd want to meet again and look at additional testing. Before I left the office, though, he said very off the cuff, there is a small chance that this might be cataplexy, but that's so rare that we're not even going to look at it right now. I didn't know what cataplexy was. I didn't think to really question him more since there were going to be other tests we were going to do over the next few months. So I left the office, parted ways with my mom, and drove two hours back to school. Now, this is 2005, so I did not have a smartphone with internet capabilities. But when I got back to my residence hall, the word cataplexy still sat in the back of my head. When I entered the doors of my dorm, a group of my friends were standing in the front lobby talking. So I joined my friends in conversation, and a few minutes into it, a friend walked up behind me and just like, very lightly and uh, like jokingly tapped me on the back of the head with an empty soda bottle. I dropped to the ground and laughing and then was able to stand right back up. This usually wouldn't have stood out in my head. That was a common occurrence for me. But when I left the conversation and went back to my room and finally had a chance to Google cataplexy, it cemented that image in my head for the rest of my life. When I read the words on the screen, my mind flashed back immediately to just what had played out in the lobby. The words that I saw after Googling cataplexy were a sudden loss of muscle tone triggered by emotions, sadness, anger, laughter, surprise. I hadn't fallen for attention. I had fallen because I was surprised. I thought about the many times I had fallen while near an entryway because someone else was entering the building at the same time as me and I was surprised to see someone there. I thought about how when I tried running while playing competitive games like Ultimate Frisbee, I couldn't make it down the field without falling multiple times because I was laughing or excited about the competition. This statement was the statement that I needed to read. I began to read more and learn about narcolepsy. After my research, I was pretty sure I had narcolepsy and cataplexy. 
However, something you need to know about me is that I am a rule follower. So I followed through with my doctor's requests for the scheduled test over the summer between my freshman and sophomore year. Then when we finally met back up in July, I was able to find out that both the epilepsy and heart tests he had put me through were thankfully negative and bring up the statement of cataplexy and how this might be impacting me. Here's just some of the details I learned from my doctor um, that day. So narcolepsy is a chronic neurological disorder that impairs the brain's ability to regulate the sleep-wake cycle. It affects one in about 2,000 people, which is about 200,000 Americans or 3 million people worldwide. There are two forms of narcolepsy. There's narcolepsy with cataplexy and narcolepsy without cataplexy. Research suggests that narcolepsy with cataplexy is caused by a lack of hypocretin, a key neurotransmitter that helps to sustain alertness and regulate the sleep-wake cycle. Less is known about narcolepsy without cataplexy. As some of you may be aware, the symptoms of narcolepsy include excessive daytime sleepiness, which is periods of extreme sleepiness during the day that feel comparable to how someone without narcolepsy would feel after staying awake for 48 to 72 hours. When I learned about excessive daytime sleepiness, it brought me back to think of all the times in high school where I'd fallen asleep around five o'clock on Friday night and struggled to get out of bed at noon on Saturday, still feeling like each of my eyelids was a weighted blanket trying to lull me back to bed. Cataplexy, again, is a striking and sudden episode of muscle weakness, and it's usually triggered by strong emotions. Laughter, exhilaration, surprise, anger. The severity may vary from the slackening of the jaw to the buckling of the knees, which are the two things I experience the most, to even falling down for the duration of a few seconds to a few minutes without being able to respond vocally. The person remains fully conscious, but is unable to speak. For me, I get a slackening of the jaw quite often. And a fellow person with narcolepsy had explained it as trying to speak with a mouth full of jello. And that is the best way that I can explain what that slackening of the jaw feels like when I get cataplexy. And then I also would oftentimes um, get the buckling of the knee. So I would just drop to the ground and then usually be able to pick myself up pretty quickly as long as I wasn't still laughing. My cataplexy is typically triggered by laughter, surprise, and then anger. So if I'm yelling at someone, I'm going to lose some muscle tone a little bit every once in a while. Hypnagogic and hypnoponic hallucinations are visual, auditory, or tactile hallucinations upon falling asleep or waking up. These can often be frightening and confusing. For me, I don't experience these all too often, thankfully. However, this past year, I was staying in a Airbnb. And when I woke up, I had to physically check my foot to see that I had not been bitten by two snakes. I had had a hallucination upon waking up that I had been bit twice in the foot. And I fully expected to wake up and have two very open wounds um, from snake bites. Thankfully, I did not. But it was one of those things where you just could not get it out of your head after it happened. 
Sleep paralysis is the inability to move for a few seconds or a few minutes after falling asleep or waking up. And it is often accompanied by hallucinations. And then there's also disrupted nighttime sleep. So unlike public perceptions, people with narcolepsy do not randomly fall asleep all the time. The timing of sleepiness for a person with narcolepsy is off. So they are often trying to fight that sleepiness during the day, but then will struggle to sleep at night. In regards to diagnosis, when you're going to get a diagnosis for narcolepsy, you're typically sent for a 24-hour sleep study. And that includes a nighttime portion and a daytime portion to test brain waves. The diagnosis is mainly based on how quickly and frequently one's brain enters rapid eye movement or dream sleep during these tests. In August of 2005, I arrived at my sleep clinic for my overnight study, and I had the pleasure of being hooked up to a ton of electrodes and asked to sleep in a room where people would be watching me all night. Felt a bit odd, but falling asleep typically wasn't a challenge for me. When I woke up in the morning, they let me know that then I undergo the multiple sleep latency test. And with that, they wanted to see how fast I would fall into REM sleep, if at all, during the naps. The hardest part of this test was staying awake for the two hours in between the naps. Watching TV has never really kept my attention. And there's not many activities you can do with a full headdress of electrodes on during the day. At the end of that sleep study, I had fallen into REM sleep four out of the five naps that I was offered, and I was well on my way to a diagnosis of narcolepsy. By the time I met with my sleep doctor at the follow-up appointment of my sleep study, I had done a lot of research on narcolepsy and cataplexy. I was ready for the diagnosis because I wanted to be able to learn what I could do to fix it. What surprised me is there's no cure for narcolepsy currently. And treatment options to manage symptoms vary widely by person. These treatment options can include, though, wake-promoting stimulants to help increase daytime sleepiness, nighttime medications to help with reducing daytime sleepiness and also reducing cataplexy attacks, antidepressants medications to decrease the occurrence of cataplexy, scheduled daytime naps to help um, fight off sleepiness as well. And other coping strategies vary widely by people, but they might include things such as social support through meetup groups or social media groups and improvements in someone's general health and wellness through sleep hygiene, diet, and fitness. Of the treatment options that were reviewed with my doctor and I, Trying the daytime stimulant and taking naps um, seemed like the best choices for me at the time. While my doctor shared that I'd most likely benefit the most from the nighttime medications, the rules and logistics of obtaining that medication while I was in college made it really challenging for me. So life after diagnosis with narcolepsy. There are many areas of life that had already been affected by having narcolepsy, but by having a diagnosis, I was really able to have better advocacy for myself. Um, so when I returned to school in fall of 2005, I shared my diagnosis with my academic advisor. She promptly scheduled me an appointment with our Disability Resource Center. 
and they were really proactive in helping me develop accommodations that could be implemented by my instructors. We included accommodations such as early priority registration so that I could select the class times that met early in the day when I was most wakeful. Um, I had the accommodation noting that I would be able to get up and stand in the back of the class if I was starting to feel tired. Uh, there was a request that lights be kept on if movies were being shown in the classroom or that the movies be made available after checkout. I had learned from my freshman year of college that taking anthropology at noon where they show lots of videos and turn off the lights was not a quick way to an A for me. These were the most helpful supports that I had when I returned to school. I tried using this um, daytime stimulants that I had been prescribed, but those only seemed to give me headaches at the time. So it seemed to do the job of not letting me fall asleep, but it didn't give me any extra energy, which is what I think caused the headaches. And I stopped taking them after a few weeks. With being more than two hours away from my doctors, trying to live a normal college life, taking a full load of classes, working as an RA, and being on call a couple nights a week, and trying to stay active in clubs, I really struggled to make time to focus on finding additional treatments to manage my symptoms. They had already become my norm after having them for five years without any treatment. In the areas of social life and dating, I am now married and have two beautiful little boys. But in college, I met my husband, my now husband, during our senior year. And we met three years after I had been diagnosed with narcolepsy. And we shared a fairly large group of friends. And those friends were all familiar with my narcolepsy and my cataplexy. And I don't ever recall sitting him down to say, there's something you should know. I have narcolepsy and cataplexy. He just kind of learned about it as we got to know each other more. Like on our first real date at Olive Garden, where I probably dropped my fork four times because I was very excited and a little bit nervous. When it came to choosing dates, we had a great Thursday night tradition. My husband was an active gamer in college and was a guild leader for his World of Warcraft group. So this meant that every Thursday night when his virtual team met up for a game, I would get to enjoy a nice long nap while he played. And then when it was over, we'd go out and grab dinner. We certainly made adjustments um, to the time of day that we went on dates to accommodate for my sleepiness. But for the most part, we still enjoyed the same dates and outings as most of our friends. And the area of work, it's one that narcolepsy has really helped me to learn that I need to be my own best advocate. I don't have a formal accommodations plan at work. However, I have found that having conversations with my leadership team and my colleagues has helped me immensely. For example, when someone turns off the lights in a big meeting, I will politely request that they at least stay on in the back of the room. This year, I was also able to get a standing desk at work. These small changes that other people probably don't even notice are helping me every day. I also appreciate knowing that I have colleagues who are aware that if they're going to do something data heavy or some deep thinking work that will schedule those opportunities in the morning when I'm most wakeful. In the area of family life, the biggest challenges I've faced has been related to determining the safest way to go about planning for a family. 
After lots of research, discussions with doctors, follow-up visits, and modifications to my treatment plan, I felt very confident in my ability to treat my narcolepsy while also protecting my children from undesired consequences um, when I chose to get pregnant. I worked with my sleep doctors and my OB to really look at, it, could I stay on the medicine that I was using? How would it affect the pregnancies? And for my personal situation, we chose to have me remain on my nighttime medicine while I was pregnant. And during my first pregnancy, we used high-risk ultrasounds to help look at the fetal development to make sure the medicine was not impacting it. So for my personal self, this worked great. If you or anyone you know has narcolepsy and is considering starting a family, please feel free to reach out to your doctors and work with them as a team because it will help the process immensely. For the future, I believe the future is very bright. I am looking forward to continuing my advocacy efforts, specifically focusing on helping future medical professionals gain awareness to sleep disorders. I, this, just this school year, have had the opportunity to speak to more than 200 medical assisting students, sharing my story and helping encourage them to continue to gain knowledge on sleep disorders in the hopes that they can someday help to reduce the time that it takes for individuals to go from symptoms to diagnosis. Five years was just too long for me, and I hope others do not have to wait that long. Thank you again, Julie, and everyone for tuning in tonight. I have completed the Raising Voices of Narcolepsy program, which is brought to you through the nonprofit organization Project Sleep, which empowers patient advocates to share their stories and improve public understanding of narcolepsy. Yay, Katie. Great job. Thank you. Oh my goodness. Yeah. I've heard your presentation a few times and it's still, there's so many moments that just, you know, give me goosebumps and, or I sigh really heavily <laughs> when you talk about that doctor. Um, so Thank you so much for sharing tonight. And I love, love, love. I don't know. I just love hearing about people's personal lives. So thank you for sharing about dating and what you, you know, went through with your pregnancy and work and school accommodations. I think all of that really brings a lot of hope because, you know, all of us on social media, it seems like we all have it so like well put together. I think sometimes it's like, oh, it must be easy for her. And I think, you know, as I've gotten to know you, then we kind of hear the reality, which is it's all these little tweaks you make um, every day to make things work. And I just, you know, think that is the reality for a lot of people. And just thank you for being so honest. So you are a director for, I'm going to get it wrong, but it's educational. Remind me what your title is. Yeah. Director of career services. And that's at a college level or? Um, mainly high school students, but we have adult students too. Okay. And do you feel that your experience with narcolepsy has influenced how you interact with people or how you see potential in people differently in any way? I think I'm often looking for, is there something we can do to help accommodate people in any way? And that's what's interesting about our school. It's all career and technical education. So it's students that are coming for a specific career training program. So 
even if they're not flourishing in a certain part of it, like I always try to look for the, what can we do to help them out? And the simplest accommodations that help one person can probably help the whole class. So just trying to look at things from that way. Oh, that's awesome. I just think it's such a good experience to bring to your work. Yeah. Um, Working with other students. What's it been like sharing your experience? Because I assume these are people, when you've been speaking to these medical assistants, that these are kind of people that are related to the school that you're working at. Yeah, so these are students that are um, going through a program to learn to be medical assistants, typically juniors and seniors in high school. And it has been really interesting. Some students have not heard anything about narcolepsy. And then other students will catch me at the end and say, like, they've known someone that was affected by narcolepsy or they know someone who has a sleep disorder. And it really opens up this conversation about as they're planning out their future careers, trying to get opportunities to do externships with sleep doctors or at least trying to take an extra class that would be specific to sleep disorders. And the comments that I get the most on our surveys at the end is that they're just so grateful that someone was willing to share their personal story rather than having to read in a textbook about what this sounds like on paper. Yeah, I agree. (laughs) That's so cool. It's just so exciting to hear. And you've already like reached so many people that... I feel like it's going to make such a difference. And I, I just wonder if it, cha- you know, like it must change how they even see you because it just, it, I would gain so much respect, you know, and, and just change the relationship in a much more, like maybe then they would feel more able to open up to you about stuff too, you know? Absolutely. That is just so cool. So thank you for being part of this, Katie. You're welcome, Julie. Thank you all for joining. Bye for now. The Project Sleep Podcast is produced by Carver Sound Productions. For more information on podcast production services, visit carversoundproductions.com.